We just began a new series last week uh, considering uh, just the first 11 chapters of Genesis and the, the God of beginnings. That this is the, the origin of everything. In the beginning is the opening of Genesis 1. And really we do find uh, the archetypes of, of human existence throughout Genesis 1-11. through 11, But we also see all of the, uh, the, the first mentions uh, and all of the themes that we will find through the entire Scripture and actually through human history wrapped up in these first 11 chapters. And so this isn't, just, this isn't a normal series where we're going verse by verse, but what we're doing is we are picking out key themes that will help us become the worshipers that God wants us to be to help us understand and connect uh, the God who is the author of the grand narrative of human history uh, and the universe as we know it is telling a story and at the center of that story is us and that's a powerful and beautiful truth that at the center of the of the story is God's relationship with humanity even rebellious humanity like us and his desire uh, to uh, I should say his uh, his determination to not exist without us he does not need us but he has chosen to not exist without us and that is a profound truth last week we considered uh, just that first opening line of Genesis 1 1 that God in the beginning he is the author of the story that is being told and each one of our lives actually is telling a story but it is interconnected to this grand narrative and God's ability as the author to override to enter into and even to make use of the messiness of our narratives um, to fulfill his grand purpose that God is the creator of everything that is he created everything out of nothing and that creative act that Hebrew word bara is a significant word showing that God is the originator of reality itself that everything owes its existence to him but that God is also in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth the domains in which he has established himself as Lord author creator Lord and we find all of those realities wrapped up in Jesus in his relationship with us. That he is the author of new birth and new creation. For it says, if anyone be in Christ Jesus, the old is gone and the new has come. If anyone be in Christ Jesus, we are new creation. He is the firstborn over a new creation. That Jesus is the one telling the story, but he is also the creator of all that is good and Jesus is at the heart of our story because God has entered into his own creation to set right what we have what we what we did is made a mess of his narrative um, Jesus actually takes the brokenness of human existence and the rebellion of human existence into himself and weaves that rebellion into his redemptive story he actually overrides it and brings something beautiful out of the ugliness and we see that in the person of Christ through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and the sending of his Spirit, and the story that he is continuing to tell about his redeeming purposes through his church, through us. And we see that Jesus is Lord, which is why we gather to declare that we are not the gods of our own lives, that we are not the gods of our existence, that we are not the ones that will ultimately determine life and death but that our existence owes its allegiance to the one who holds the keys of life and death in his very hand to jesus christ which we are told that every knee will one day bow to jesus as lord so today what i want us to consider um, is a series of thoughts drawn out of the six days of creation and I, I i say six days because on the seventh day he rested which we'll consider next week when we look at the sabbath um, but today, I want us to look at verses one, uh, excuse me, verse two through thirty-one, and I'm just going to read through this text, and then I'm just going to bring a few observations to it. Okay? So let's begin together, and I'm going to put it up behind me. If you don't have your Bible, there are Bibles in front of you in the pews. Feel free to open up and read along, uh, and 
we begin in verse 2, and it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. It, literally, the, the, the earth was, it, the Hebrew word is, it was void and waste. It was chaos, if you will. It was, it was darkness, which means it, it, was, it was a space of nothingness. Darkness is over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering there over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Notice, He says the light was good. And what does He do with that light? He separates the light from the darkness. Darkness is not a created thing. The light is what is good, for God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And God says that the light is good and the darkness is merely the absence of light. It is the nothingness which becomes a spiritual threat to human existence due to sin. And we'll see this is a huge theme, the theme of separation, the theme of God speaking order into chaos, the God of light who separates light from darkness. Uh, and then what does it say? And there was light. God saw the light was good. He separated the light from darkness, called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made a vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. It's interesting. The second day is the only day that He doesn't say it is good and it's less of a day of creation and more of a day of separation. Once again, that separation of the waters creating the space or the atmosphere. Uh, and and I, I, I love this picture uh, that God, it's interesting that there is no statement of and it was good. God saw that it was good. In verses 9-13 through 13, it says, And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters He called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to the various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed and in, in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And then in verses 14 through 19, and God said, Let there be light in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and the days and the years. Let them be lights in the vaults of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Just a quick mention. And by the way, if you want to go into depth on these texts, you can listen to Sunday night's uh, series on Fellowship of the Burning Heart. We did the first three chapters last weekend. Um, but just to mention, it's worth noting that God creates, God, God says, let there be light. The God of light says there is light. He separates it from the darkness, which is nothing. Darkness is not something created. It's the absence of God's light. But why is the stars, the sun, and the moon created on the fourth day then? Aren't they the source of light? And just to be clear about this, this creation narrative is that Moses is giving to the children a cosmology that is in contrast to the worship of the many gods um, that they had come under from in slavery under Egypt rule. And one of the key things they worshipped was the sun god Ra, as well as the moon, as well as the river, and a plethora of other things um, in creation. Man has always been tempted and when I say man, I mean humanity, has always been tempted to place its worship and adoration upon the creature and the creation rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And here we have this incredible picture in which God is, is inspiring Moses to purposefully, I believe, uh, to undermine the worship of false gods. Notice sun and moon are not even named. They aren't even given names. Just the greater light for the day and the lesser light for the night. 
And here's one of the things that um, people do with Genesis that is such a maddening thing is they try to turn it into a scientific document. This is not an attempt to answer the mechanics of creation. Science can explore the how all day long, but only God can give us the why. And it can, it, science will always come up to a dead end. It will always come to a place where it must ask the question, yeah, but what was there before that? What was eternal? What did not have a beginning? And if everything that is had a beginning, but how did that beginning begin? And I think the first verse of Genesis 1, when the most scientific thing I'll say is that it seems to me that in the beginning, time, God created the heavens and the earth, space and matter. God is the author. Science can sit around and, and try to understand how he did it. Um, but like quantum mechanics, I don't think they're going to come to their final conclusions. Uh, there is a there is a, 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 a mystery that is involved and the purpose of Genesis is not to give us a scientific account of how, how things are made, the mechanics of it. It is meant to declare that God is the originator and the author of all that is. And He stands supreme above His creation and cannot be confused with His creation and at the same time, creation cannot exist without His sustaining it. That's as scientific as I'm going to get for you. And I like science. I'm actually weirdly obsessed with quantum mechanics right now. I don't understand any of it, so don't ask me questions about it, but I like to read a lot about it. It's insane. It's insane. And it makes me even more convinced that there is a God in heaven. Uh, verses 20 through 23. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures. And let birds fly over the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them. It's the first time this word has been used. And said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. There you have it. All the sea creatures, all the birds. And then verses 24 through 27. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Uh, by the way, um, here we have verse 21, uh, God created. Second time that word is used again, that, which is found in verse 1, um, Barah. Um, and then you have it again in 21, and then you have it again in 27. Uh, three distinct God creates the heavens and the earth. God creates uh, the living things and then God creates humanity. Significant um, declarations of God as the originator of these three dominions, if you will. And God let the land produce the living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along, the wild animals each according to its kind. It was so God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind. And that word mankind is uh, actually the word of our first parent. It's the same word, Adam. Adam literally means humanity. In our image, in our likeness, notice the plurality in the statement of God. There's arguments of whether this is pointing toward the Trinity, which I would say yes. And there's also um, the thoughts that it's pointing to the heavenly council, which I would also say, yes. <laughs> um, I've, I'm comfortable with both of those interpretations and likely believe that it's speaking to both. And all they mean by that when God says let us is that God is within himself a community. We are Trinitarian. <laughs> uh, we believe that God is one revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what it means to be made in the image of God supremely means that we are made for relationship. Let us make man in our image and our likeness so that they may rule 
over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. In case we were confused why some translations say God said, let us make man, speaking of humanity, because the close of this passage says he made them male and female in his image and it is man and woman together together that actually that is it creates the ability to be relational beings it is not enough for us to just be in relationship with god we need relationship with others like ourselves to truly know god uh, and it is man and woman together there is an equality in creation that cannot be ignored and sadly uh, there has been times in human history where that has not been uh, that is, that has not uh, been recognized, and we need to recognize it. Then, verses twenty-eight to thirty-one, God blessed them and said to them, "Be fruitful and increase, have babies." This is the Catholic Church's primary uh, means of evangelism, and I think that we at Door of Hope are also doing a pretty good job of this. Like, you're like. Do you share the gospel with people? You're like, I had four babies. Um, <laughs> and, and I think it takes both. I think it takes both. We want to be a people that, that are fruitful and, and, and multiply not just other human beings, but human beings that love and worship their creator. And I love this. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. The command of God over humanity, this is why... Uh, uh, Organizations like PETA could never, be, uh, could never be a Christian organization because of its absolute diminishment of the uniqueness of humanity over the rest of the animal kingdom. It is only humans that are image bearers of God in the material world. Uh, I would say that there is an element of image bearing in the angelic host, um, but Scripture gives us very little information about that because the Bible is not primarily about angels. Uh, the spiritual domain is mentioned. It's there. It's always at play behind the scenes of things. But the focus of Scripture is humanity's role in the world and its relationship with God. Uh, humanity's rebellion against God and God's determination to set right what we make a mess of. But God's initial order upon humanity it was to subdue and to rule. That we are co-laborers with God. God creates his creation and puts us at the center of it and gives us the the opportunity actually the command to be ones who rule over this world and what we see in humanity due to the fall is that the the desire the god-given desire to rule and to subdue has never ceased but due to sin our desire to subdue tends to lead toward destruction of the world as we know it and we see this we see places all the time it's that picture of there's something we know like imagine what this was like before we did just you fill in the blank to this to this place uh that there's these it's like going into the ruins of of some ancient kingdom like where i went in crete and you're seeing these Mino the, the ruins of the minoan empire and it's like it's insane it's thousands of years old and it's the remains. I can imagine it in its glory, but it's, it, I can see that there's, there's, there's order and there's design in it, but it's so far removed from what it is now. It's been so deteriorated by time um, and conquered over his, throughout history that now it's just the like, patterns on the ground of where a house once was or where a palace, like the palace of Gnosis, where the Minotaur supposedly roamed. You know, they're just, they're just ruins now. But you can imagine the former glory. And I think that we can sense that in the world around us. And we feel that even about ourselves, that, that we're meant for more, but there's a frustration in creation that we can't ignore as well. And there's a sense that I, I know I'm meant to be more, but what is wrong with me? That's the question I ask myself every single morning when I wake up. What is wrong with me? I actually, I, but I usually do it um, in a conversation forum. I'll be like, Josh White, what is wrong with you? And I'll be like, I don't know, man. You tell me. Is that normal? 
I, I don't do that actually. <laughs> I have done that, but I don't do it often. <laughs> but I do sense the frustration of a creation that has gone somewhere along the line wrong. And there is also a deep sense in me and the, the refusal at the same time to believe that God is anything other than good and that the best is yet to come. And that was there, that, that belief was there even before I got saved. There was a sense that we were made for more. Um, and I sensed it in the depths of my being. However, the frustration overwhelmed me. Uh, and I think that this is something that we need to understand. And look what it says. Subdue it. Everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So here is the creation account. Moses is giving to the children of Israel their own cosmology. And they're coming out of slavery from a land that worshipped the, the various aspects of creation itself. They worship the sun. They worship the moon. They worship the cattle. They worship the river. And, and Moses saying, no, listen. Here is the reality. Behind creation is the one true God, the Creator God. And He has created everything out of nothing for Himself. And He has placed you at the center of that creation and now he is helping them understand no we don't worship the the creature we don't worship the creation we worship the creator the author of creation but i want us to take note of a few things in in these passages to, to bring it into who we are as a people who have put our faith in jesus because jesus said that if you knew Moses and you knew the Scriptures, you would know that they all speak of me. And I would argue that we aren't preaching if we aren't preaching Jesus. And I would argue that we're not really preaching Jesus if we're not preaching Christ and Him crucified. And the world is chasing after wisdom and chasing after signs and experiences, but we, Paul said, preach Christ and Him crucified. And how does Jesus connect to these realities well there are serious there's a series of words in these opening verses these first 31 verses that are significant themes throughout the scripture that god is the god who creates that he's the god who speaks that he is the god who separates that he is the god who sees and that he is the god who blesses and i want us to just think through each one of those words for just a moment you know, it's easy to note the very clear statement that God says over and over again throughout the creation account that God saw what He had made, that it was good. When it says that God saw that it was good, it's saying something very specific. That, God, that, that it is what God intended, um, but even more than that, that, it's also something that He is pleased with. It's something He's pleased with. He's happy with His creation. He, he, he made it, and it was, it was a joy for Him. But it was a joy for Him even knowing that the creation would go wrong before it went wrong. And it was a joy for Him to actually determine to take what we made a mess of and bring beauty out of it through the sending of His Son. And we're told that Jesus, that was for the joy that was set before Him, that He endured the shame of the cross. And that joy, my friends, is you. Is you. And so I want us to think through how these words connect to us. Because first of all, God is a God who creates. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, 17, it says, for by Him, speaking specifically of Jesus, Paul is, is helping the church both the Jewish listeners and, and the pagan or the, 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 the pagan world that is a part now of the church. Uh, Paul is constantly helping the, uh, God's people understand that 
His choosing of them was never so that they could turn in upon themselves. It wasn't at the rejection of the rest of the world, but He chose them to be a conduit by which He would bring redemption to the rest of the world. And once the church is birthed, there's always these tensions between the Jewish Christians and the Gentiles Christians. And Paul is, is trying to bring order to and connection to both of them by showing the Jews consistently that Jesus is the same as the God of the Old Testament, that He is that God, um, and that He is Israel's Messiah, and that He is both the Son of God uh, and He is Son of Man. He is God and man, the God-man. That He is the Logos, the, the Word, the living Word in action. But for the pagan listener, Paul is also trying to establish that Jesus is the Creator of all that is. And so, he is bringing the community together by showing them that Jesus is supreme over all things. If you want to know what God is like, you'll look to Jesus. And so in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, he says of Jesus, and this is, this is that beautiful passage in which he's declared as the firstborn over a new creation. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things are held together. Jesus is the Creator. God spoke. If you want to see something really beautiful, is you can see the Trinity at play even in the first few verses of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it says, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, the chaos, the darkness, the emptiness. And it says, and God spoke. And there you have it. The Word of God, the Spirit of God. The one true God. God is the Father and originator of all things. The Spirit of God. The Word of God. One God revealed in three persons. And Jesus is declared as the very Word of God. He is the God who creates. For by Him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Once again, it also points beyond Him just simply as Creator, but it points back to what we considered last week, that He is the author. It's what Luther meant when he said that Satan is still the Lord's Satan. Isn't that an interesting statement? Not that Satan is determined, uh, is everything that Satan does is determined by God, but it, the point is, is that Satan functions within parameters. He can do no more or no less than what, what God has determined. God is, has the parameters on the story, even on the dark players within the story. God is never responsible for sin, but even Satan himself has to ask God um, for permission to do things uh, because he is the author. In fact, you see it in Job, Satan before the heavenly council. You see it, it actually one of the more, and you're like, well, that's just a parable. Okay, well, I don't think it is, but say it was. Fine. What about Jesus' words to Peter? Peter, Satan has requested to sift you. To sift you. And what's terrifying about that passage, he said, but I have prayed that the Lord would strengthen you. In other words, Satan has asked permission to sift you, and I have said yes. But I pray that, but I'm going to use Satan's attempt to destroy your life as a means of actually bringing you to real life, which is a true surrender to me. So God, this is what Luther meant. Not that Jesus make Satan do the evil things he does because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But that as the author, he has the power and the sovereign right to override and to utilize what people intend for good to bring about, or excuse me, what people intend for evil, what Satan intends for evil, he can bring about good out of it. And the cross is the greatest picture of that reality. The ultimate humiliation in the first century was to be crucified. Jesus takes the horror of the cross and all that it means 
humanity's hatred and its willingness to cause suffering. And he takes it and turns that symbol of evil and death and destruction as the key symbol of life and hope for us. He's the author. He's the creator. He's the authority. And what I want you guys to understand today, how this speaks to you and I, to draw it out of the abstract and the, and the, the kind of that space of, of mystery and wonder, is that He is also the creator of new realities for you and I. I think for you and I, we can become overwhelmed with ways of being that seem to control and dominate our existence. Uh, I was a kid who was dominated by deep anxieties. I mean, crippling anxieties as a child that pushed me into the deepest nether regions of my brain and left me feeling ultimately invisible. A kid who grew up without a dad and only had stepdads that didn't understand me. And, that, and a kid who grew up in deep poverty who was continually bullied for being being a mama's boy whose favorite TV show is Fame. And if you're too young to remember what that is, you should immediately watch all of Fame because it's a great, great show. Because next time you get mad, you'll know that you too have the freedom like Leroy to go out in the hallway and dance it off. Just dance it off. Um, as a kid who liked to dance and sing, I had just, of course, when you grew up in a little farming town, you're, that's not going to be like a popular, it isn't like Footloose, okay? It, is, it does not play out like Footloose. I may have done the dancing like, like Kevin Bacon, but I did not experience the same joy and celebration and acceptance of those, of those desires. All of that stuff that played into a deep sense of brokenness and a lack of in, in feeling misunderstood and plagued with an inability for anything to go right, it felt like at times, into my 20s. And I meet Jesus and I get saved, and it's radical, and it's life-changing, but there's still these plagues of like, but this is, I'm still that same broken kid. I still need, I still need, desperately need attention. I still desperately want to overcome these areas of brokenness, and there were temptations at times throughout my history as a Christian to fall back into the trapping like the children of Israel and look back at my life when I was in slavery and say, but that's who I am. But when we think of Jesus as the Creator, we need to recognize that He is the Creator of new creation within each of us. And yes, it's true that you don't get to like you don't get a, a like the, a redo um, when you get saved, and all of a sudden you magically don't have any of the wounds of not having a dad. Just like if you got saved with one arm, it doesn't mean you're going to grow back another arm. You're going to be a saved person with one arm. But there is a reality that is often ignored. And that is this, people often surrender to their brokenness rather than surrendering their brokenness to Jesus, who is the wounded healer. And we say, but I was born this way. This is who I am. Well, Jesus Christ as the Creator says, yes, but you've been born again. If anyone be in Him, He is a new creation. She is a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. And you may not experience the fullness of what that means. You may not experience the fullness of what that means in this life, but that actually is reality and that is the hope in which we must hang our lives. And yes, I'm still troubled by my distractibility. I can still at times find the insecurities that plagued me as a child, plaguing me as a 50-year-old man. But I hold tenaciously to the hope that I am in Christ Jesus, I am a new creation, and I will not be defined by those things. I will recognize that those things play into who I am today, but my identity is Jesus. My identity is Jesus. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, He is your identity. And He understands the weakness and the brokenness of your life. He made you. And He made you for Himself. And you say, did He make me broken? Did He give me this? Did He give me that? Did He cause this sickness? No, what God has permitted is the world in rebellion. The world in sin means that, that even creation itself 
is breaking down due to sin's dominion over creation. It says all of creation groans for its redemption, which means that we have to consistently hold tenaciously to the hope that there is the, the seal, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit upon us that the best is yet to come. And this is why it says whoever hopes, holds on to this hope that they will one day see Jesus face to face, that they will one day be as He is when they see Him, Whoever holds on to this hope, this is from 1 John chapter 3, it says, whoever holds on to this hope will be purified now as he is pure. The clinging to the belief that I am a new creation in Jesus and that the fullness of that new creation will one day be revealed when I see him face to face is actually the key to my sanctification right now in the moment. And this is what I mean by not allowing our histories to be the thing that is our identification, even though it is a part, we are, we are the accumulation of our histories. But how much are you allowing Jesus to define your history since you've met Him? Are your yesterdays filled with memories of Him? And I would simply say this, that even when your yesterdays are not filled with memories of Him, He was always there with you. And He is always protecting you. And He always has the ability to take the stupid, dumb stuff we do. When we return back our eyes back to the slavery of Egypt, He has the ability to even take those dumb moves and weave them back again into His redemptive purposes because He is the Creator. He's the author. He's also the one who speaks. I love again and again throughout the Genesis account uh, that, that it is very, very purposeful in the sacred Scripture that we are dealing with not, some, uh, not the unmoved mover of Greek philosophy. God, if He is anything, is the moved mover because He is personality. And He is a God who thinks and feels and wills. He speaks and He is happy with what He creates. He's creative. He makes out of His love. And He speaks it into existence because God is a God who communicates. I, I love that word um, in the Hebrew, Amar. Um, and I'm pretending to know how to enunciate. And if Tim was here, he would say, don't do that again. Um, but it means speaks or commands. He commands things into existence but i love this he is a god who speaks and commands into our lives look at this verse in hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 i love i quote this passage all the time because i think it's so central to our understanding of what it means to be a jesus-centered community and it aligns with genesis chapter 1 that god at various times long ago at many times and in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. In the Greek, it doesn't make sense. It's abstract. It is He has spoken to us in Son. Which means Jesus is the actual final Word. The God has nothing to say to us that He hasn't already said and continues to say through Jesus. This is why T.F. Torrance, my favorite Scottish theologian, said there is no God behind the back of Jesus. Jesus says, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. What is God like? The world will ask us. And we need to be quick to say He is like Jesus. What is Jesus like? Come to the church and experience Jesus witness through us. And I think it takes the church to truly <laughs> represent Jesus well. Generally not represented perfectly well. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's true. But there is a communal component to that. That it is, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. It takes, it takes a whole family to actually begin to even point people toward the reality of Christ. But each one of us have that ability as well as we surrender to Him. And people will see Jesus in us in spite of us in spite of the mixture that's in play in us. But here's what I think is most important about this. He has spoken, God has spoken through the fathers, through the Scriptures. But in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. 
whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also, once again, notice, through whom he created the world. Just in case you thought I was overly reading into that Colossians passage and applying it to Genesis 1, the writers of the New Testament are very, very careful to absolutely attribute God speaking to Jesus Himself. That He is the Word of God and that it is through Him He created all things. And I love this. For in the air of all things, through Him He also created the worlds. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. He didn't just speak the Word into existence. He continues to uphold its existence and ours as well by that same Word. Jesus is that Word. And let me just tell you this. That God is a God, if I could borrow from A.W. Tozer in his beautiful book, The Pursuit of God, who is perpetually speaking into His creation. The question is, is do you know His voice? Jesus said, I am the Good Shepherd. The sheep, my sheep, they know my voice. And they hear me and they follow me. And for some of you, that creates a deep anxiety. Are you telling me that you hear from Jesus? Yes, I am saying that. I don't believe the Christian life is meant to be some sort of abstract idea. It's a living relationship. And Jesus says, you'll know my voice. They hear me and they follow me. And my question is, is do you know the voice of Jesus? And you may ask, well, how do you hear the voice of Jesus? Does He speak audibly to you? I've met people that have claimed that Jesus spoke to them audibly. I had a friend in, um, from Iran that Jesus spoke to her and revealed Himself to her, literally spoke to her in a shower. <laughs> um, and her sister, unbeknownst to her, had gotten saved, and she came home and shared the Gospel with her. And she's like, I already know about Jesus. Tell me what I need to do. Yes, there is that miraculous intervention, but I would say that Jesus speaks to us through His Scriptures. He speaks to us through, through our prayers. He speaks to us through the community. We are all carriers of Christ and His Spirit within us. This is why I encourage you to respond and, to, and pray with others because often Jesus will speak to you through the conduits that He has determined to use to bring His Gospel to the world, which is you and I. This is why you can hear a pastor preach. I, I sense this. I felt this um, the day that we had Chuck um, Bomar preach a few weeks back. What an amazing message. And I, it was like, I felt like he was speaking directly to me. Like, I don't remember talking through this with you, Chuck. Did you write this for me? And some of you feel that. And I've had people say that. I actually had a guy come up to me once after a sermon, and he was angry. And he goes, who, are you angry at me? And I'm like, I actually don't even know who you are. I've never met you before in my life. And he goes, well, who told you about me then? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, in your sermon, you said this. Who told you that? And I'm like, I'm pretty sure in the context I was talking about myself. And he goes, are you messing with me right now? And he was actually like threatening. And I'm like, uh, no, no, seriously, I don't actually know who you are. I think, I think I know what's happening right now, man. And he's like, what's that? And I'm like, I think God is speaking to you. I think Jesus is speaking to you. And, th and my question is, is, what are you going to do with what he's speaking? Because right now you seem angry, but are you angry because you're afraid? And then you start crying. And I think that this is one of the beautiful things. I think we need to be people that are open to God speaking through us to others. Jesus often makes Himself most powerfully known to us through others, through His children. He is speaking. And you've got to keep this in mind. Think about the multitude of voices that are vying for your attention 24-7. And some of you are thinking, I don't know how to hear the voice of Jesus. Well, I would start by asking the question of how much time do you actually create for Jesus to even speak to you? How can He speak to you if you never give Him space to speak? If your primary means of interaction with others is your phone, for example, and whenever you're not with other people, you're on your phone and you're looking at Instagram, you are allowing a lot of voices of influence. They are called influencers for a reason. What the world has failed to tell you is that it's a joke. The idea, and if you're a social media influencer, 
beware of that responsibility, my friends, uh, because it's all about money and it's all about making sure that people are willing to buy into whatever it is that you're selling to so supposedly give their life the meaning that they hope for. Uh, and I'm telling you right now, as Christians, our responsibility is to point people to the only voice that can actually speak into that existential reality. And that's the voice of Jesus. And if you're a person that isn't get, creating space for Jesus to speak, it's not surprising that you're not hearing from Him. But it doesn't mean He's not speaking. In fact, He never loses His voice. He never gets tired of calling to you. And you need to hear Jesus calling. And you need to create the devotional life, the space for Him to be able to do that. And you know who you are that's sitting here that, is, that knows deep down, you may at first say, I don't know how to hear the voice of Jesus, but when I simply ask the question, how much time do you give for Him to speak? You recognize I'm not in community. I'm, not, I'm never opening my Bible. I'm not praying. I'm not actually even creating the space for Him to speak. And I want you to know, listen, His mercies are new every day. He's not disappointed in you. He's not angry at you. Just begin again or maybe just begin because you never started and if you don't know jesus it just begins by inviting him into your life if you do know jesus and you've wandered it's just about returning to the heart of the father and returning home again and again he is a god who speaks he's not just a god who speaks but he's also a god who separates hebrews 7 26 for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy innocent unstained separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens he is the God who is separate, which means He's holy. Jesus is one who loves us in our sin, but He is also holy love. He is not content to leave us there. In Genesis 1, He separates the light from darkness. That may be an actual statement about Him creating out of nothing, and darkness is essentially the absence of light. It is nothingness. And we give ourselves to nothingness all the time. It says that men did not accept Jesus because they preferred the dark. The dark is the choosing of the shadow self. When we choose dark over light, what we are choosing is to, uh, to cling to that which actually has no substance nor any reality at all. And we live by that lie often. The shadow self is the false belief that I am my own God and that I have the ability to determine my, my hopes, my future, my existence. You are not God. And you can play God, but that is all you're doing is playing. And it won't lead to joy. It leads to a, to a diminishment of reality. To a diminishment of substance. Have you met people like that that have so given over to the world, so obsessed with the things of the world that they, that they literally, it's like there's zero depth to their personhood. They've, they have stunted their ability to go deep because they have, they have inoculated themselves against pain, against existence, and they have established themselves as their own gods. And we see it all around us, and I have found it in myself at times that if I want depth of character, it comes through a recognition uh, that I have been set apart, not to be an avoidance of the world, but I have been set apart, that is, from, that, from the lie of the shadow self that I might become who God intended me to be. And this is what Jesus is inviting you into. He is the high priest who is sanctified and set apart, who has made a sacrifice once and for all, and He wants to separate you from the darkness so that you can be a conduit of light. It's reality. There's no harshness in that. His holiness should not create in us, um, create in us this, this terror that I'm failing. It should just create in us a desire to surrender to the light. But you can't surrender to the light without the light revealing what is dark within us. And you're never going to come to an end of discovering darkness within you. And this is why we need to continually surrender to the one alone who can separate fact from fiction who can separate lies from truth who can actually bring about the light within us that we so desperately need he's the god who sees matthew 9 36 and when he saw the crowds he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd that word in the hebrew that god saw what he had created and it was good it literally means more than just 
He observes it, but he understands it. And I love that passage of Jesus. He sees. And every time he sees people in their brokenness, he's like a shepherd mourning over how lost his sheep are. And he has compassion on them. Listen, God doesn't just see you. He, he doesn't just see you where you are, but he understands you. And if the gospel means anything, it means that he cares about you. He cares deeply about you. He created you. Your life actually matters. It has eternal significance. It matters. He sees. It also means that there is nothing hidden from him. And sin is always our attempt to hide from God and from others. But when we come into the gospel of light, when we come into the gospel of Jesus, the one who is the living word by which all things were created, he brings us out of hiding into that new creation reality. And we recognize that he sees me, he cares for me, he loves me with an everlasting love. And finally, he is the God who blesses. Matthew 5, 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When God creates, when it moves into the living creatures, it says that He blessed them. He blessed them. And He, he put, literally, he, in the Hebrew it means that He filled them with strength. He adored them, even. Uh, he praised them. For, and it's, it's almost like God is saying, I am so pleased with this and I am giving you the ability to actually fulfill what it is that I've called you to do. And this is the joy of what it means to be a people of God is that God doesn't just save us. He fills us with His Spirit. He creates within us a capacity to do that which we've never been able to do before which is love with His love. And He actually blesses us. And I think sometimes we think that blessing is somehow just material or... or um, uh, physical blessings, um, but it, it is it's not it's the greatest blessing, the greatest gift that God gives again and again, and really every gift must be understood in this sense. The Spirit gives gifts, we're told. The gifts of the Spirit is something that we're supposed to identify, but where we get wrong is that the Spirit Himself is the gift. And what we get wrong as Christians is that Jesus doesn't come to give us good gifts like Santa Claus. He comes to give us Himself. He is the gift. And we need to recognize that we are like the royal priesthood. And the Levites were to have no portion of the land for the Lord their God was their portion. He is the gift. And His blessing is His presence with us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I just ask you today, do you believe that? This is the word of the Lord.